0: Rock is lit!
1: Welcome to Rock is Lit, the podcast that takes listeners on the quest to find the very best rock novels and explore the propulsive energy and raw power of these stories about music, the people who make it, and the characters who love it. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Christy Alexander-Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook at Christy Alexander-Hallberg, and twitter and instagram at christy hallberg visit my website at christyalexanderhallberg.com if you enjoy the show please subscribe follow and spread the word hello lit listeners we've got one holy hell of a great show for you in this episode tony DeShane is here to talk about his novel confessions of a teenage jesus jerk a story that follows a music-loving libidinous adolescent boy as he navigates growing up as a Jehovah's Witness in California's Bay Area of the 1980s. Tony is the author and award-winning screenwriter of the film adaptation of his novel, Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk, directed by Eric Stoltz and streaming on Amazon Prime. His journalism and essays have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Mother Jones, Penthouse, The Rumpus, The Believer, and other media outlets. He teaches screenwriting at UCLA Extension, And he was a music columnist and covered books and authors for the San Francisco Chronicle until 2015. He's hosted Drinks with Tony since 2002, a chat show with authors, musicians, and filmmakers. Tony's hard at work on his next novel, Dreamcasting. He lives in East Hollywood, Los Angeles. Welcome to the show, Tony.
2: Why, thank you so much. And I've (laughs) I've had you on Drinks with Tony because it was conversations with you as well. Yep. Good fun.
1: I had a blast doing that. So I know you're a big fan of Nick Caves. Yeah. And you've interviewed him and written about him a lot for The Rumpus, but I'm interested to see who else is on your radar. So let's play a set of five questions. What's the first album or record you bought?
2: Oh, as a kid? Um, I, the, oh, okay. I know the first record I bought was Journey Escape, and it was at the grocery store at Safeway.
1: Okay. and and, they had albums at the grocery store yes i'm
2: 53 so i don't know this was in the suburbs of san francisco wow you can also get you can get records and cigarettes right next to the uh clerk and they had journey (laughs) escape and i still know every every word to every song on that record because i played it constantly because that was just it was just so foreign to me and i just like i studied it i think it was I think it was my um I think it was like a a little beacon out of my little Jehovah's Witness world where I can be like, mm. "Oh my god, these guys are speaking to me and they're talking about emotional stuff and I get it, man. <laughs> Don't stop believing. I get it."
1: Oh, was so. that on that album? That song? Yeah, I think All so. All right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What was your most memorable live music experience?
2: There's this guy Billy Childish he was in the, uh, these bands, The Headcoats, The Milkshakes, The Mighty Caesars. He did a tour, and I actually covered this tour for The Chronicle around 2004, where it was just him singing his songs very stripped down. Mm. And his wife was with him on the tour. And, uh, and I was married at the time, and we were sitting in the front row of this small club. And he was playing, like, all his hits, but just stripped down. And every once in a while, when he needed a backup singer, his wife was sitting next to us. And she would just sing along. Oh, wow. And I was just, it was just, it was gorgeous. So I'll, I'll say right now in my head that Billy Childish tour uh, around 2004, 2005. Okay. It was just, if I can experience that again, I would in a second. Really cool. He's also he's mostly a painter. He's he's an interesting fella. He and and he um during the eighties and nineties. I mean he was putting out records constantly. So he's got a huge back catalog.
1: Well, I know you've interviewed so many people, but if you had the opportunity to interview an artist or a band, and and we're going with living or dead here, who would it be, and what's one question you would ask? Wow,
2: that's a good one. Um, Living or dead. You know, I never interviewed David Bowie and that um and I even saw, I saw him live in 1991 and I only knew like Let's Dance and one other song by him. And it wasn't until about five years ago that I for some reason I started realizing what David Bowie was and listened to every album front to back. Mm-hmm. And I was just like. I saw him in the nineties and I never saw him again. And what is my problem? And the, he just seems like he was so centered and down to earth as he got older. And even his last record, the one they recorded when he knew he was dying.
1: In the filler of men, in the filler of men,
0: stands a solitary candle upon.
2: There's just, when you think about it, there's something so, um, just knowing of self. A lot of musicians are pain in the ass to interview because they have that image thing. Um, especially when I was doing that column for the Chronicle, it's just like, I wanted to stab the eyes out of every 10 bands I covered. It's just just like, it's just like, stop it. You're, you're going to be an accountant in two years and the band's breaking up. I can tell. but. yeah, but but something with David Bowie, uh he's he just feels like he's on a different level, not just as a musician, but kind of as a human, but also not on a different level where he's above you, but a different level where he's going to be right next to you. And those are the conversations I love to have. I wish I can talk to David Bowie. What would I ask him? Um well, if I could ask him where if I can ask him now how's it going after death? Where, where do we go? If it was now, that's what I would ask him. Yeah. That would be the question. If it was before he died. Um, you know, the question I would ask would be, how are you doing? And I think he would tell me the truth and that would start an interesting conversation. Um, I, I, I don't have any burning. I think I would get more knowledge out of him. If I just asked how he was doing instead of researching a question, because this, because he'll have a real conversation with you if you're not blowing smoke up his ass. It's kind of the same as Nick Cave, which I realized over the years, don't blow smoke up his ass and, um, and don't tell him what, uh, don't ask him what his songs mean and you'll get a great conversation with him.
1: You've interviewed him so many times. Well, three, at this but point. it's
2: it's three more times than I ever thought I would have in my life.
1: So. Yeah, <laughs> and he is one of your favorite musicians, isn't
2: he? He's he's carried me. So, the first time I saw him was in 1990, and I only mm-hmm. knew two songs from him. And and uh, it was right when I started doing college radio, and everyone at the college radio station was like, got we gotta go," and I'm like, "Okay," and I went and I saw this I saw this band, and then I was just I was fresh out of leaving the Jehovah's Witness just, just for a few months. And then I went back to the Jehovah's Witnesses because I, I was scared. But I saw Nick and I saw the band and they were all dressed in suits and they were singing. It was almost like a church and they did sing about the Bible, but it was like violent, fucked up uh, lyrics. And the energy was just, it. it changed me. Wow. And after that, I went to the radio station and we used to have different production studios so i i went and bought a ton of cassettes and i just recorded every album of his from the production studio mm. and and learned everything about him so by the time he came around in 1992 i knew every song and then i just saw him over and over
1: what's on your playlist now
2: you know i've been, I've been listening to a lot of like hip hop and uh it's cuz that's alternative music to me you know um so mm-hmm. I've been listening to a lot of uh Kendrick Lamar. I even bought uh okay. I bought uh his vinyl. I've been listening to most Def. Um who else is on there? Big Sean. I mean you know, these are all like top forty. And it's just funny because everyone else knows him. I'm like, this is no, this is alternative music to me, and it's really good.
0: I come from a generation of pain, will murder his minor, rebellious and more jealous, a chip you for designer. Belt buckles to cloud over zealous and prone to violence, make the wrong turn, be your will of the will alignment. residue burn, mist it in the inner city, miscommunication to keep humble detector busy. No protection is risky, desensitized, abandon vandalized pain, covered up and camouflage, get used to hearing arsenal rain, analyze. And,
2: you know, Nick Cave's still on the playlist, um, and. I been mean, I was just right before we came on I was listening to Metallica Master of Puppets I've been uh so oh, yeah wow. okay. was, you know it's it's all over the place
1: so. Yeah eclectic taste but I would expect that from you <laughs>
2: <laughs> Or schizophrenia Sorry. maybe it's that
1: <laughs> uh, So which artist or band would you like to see featured in a rock novel in some capacity
2: Uh oh interesting uh well I'm kind of doing that right now because Nick Cave is a minor character in the novel I'm working on.
1: So. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. That means you have to come back on the show. Okay.
2: <laughs> when? When? Yeah. <laughs> when it gets published. So probably 2024 if I'm lucky. You know how that stuff. You know how that stuff goes. I where do. It's just like submit. Okay. Great. Lead time a year. For, 14 months, but it's all great because that builds the hype amongst the industry. so
1: Let's take a short break and we'll be back with Tony Duchesne. There's a
0: devil waiting outside your door, oh, much long. There's a devil waiting outside your door, oh, how much long. And he's bucking and braying and pouring at the flow.
1: And we're back with Tony Duchesne, author of Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk. So I really love this blurb that author Mark Haskell Smith gave you for the novel. Darkly funny and authentically kinky. Tony Duchesne's first novel is a surprisingly sweet coming-of-age story told through the eyes of a horny, Jehovah-battered, wielding door door-to-door proselytizer, I may never answer my doorbell again. That is just fantastic. <laughs> that, yeah, just kind of says it all. You know,
2: I like hearing it out loud. Yeah, Mark. Yeah. Mark is great. I adore him. He's been a he's been a friend and mentor for many years.
1: So I love the book, oh, and you. I, I you must have had so much fun writing no. it, just channeling no. kind of your no Not at all. Was... <laughs> Do tell.
2: No, it's it was very hard to write the book. Um, I mean, the, the, I you know, I know it's comedy, and I know I know there's a there's a light touch to it, but I was breaking open scars and re, remaking them bleed, and ex, it's um this book comes from just utter tragedy and horror, <laughs> and then but I I got to massage it to bring a um bring a lightheartedness to it because. I didn't want to preach. I wanted to just, the whole intent was to set the reader as a Jehovah's witness for as long as I read it and not really give too much judgment and and show the fun that was also involved. But the, my tragedy, I had to pull back a lot from my actual tragedies. So uh, it was a very hard book to write. It wasn't easy in any way at all. There was there. uh, It was, yeah.
1: Well this is a testament to your talent then because it reads like you were having a great time and it's funny and you get into that voice of these teenagers and I could just imagine you channeling your horny teenage self and and just going there but but you're yeah there is heartbreak in it there's humor and there's heartbreak and before we go any further I know that your main character, Gabe, grew up in a family of Jehovah's Witnesses, and I know that you were a Jehovah's Witness, but you weren't born into it. How did you get involved?
2: Uh, My parents converted when I was three years old. I was involved almost all my life. I do remember celebrating my last birthday at three. I just vaguely remember that. I remember the car that Grandpa Tore got me that I thought was the coolest thing in the world, and then that was the last birthday I ever celebrated. Um, and I probably remember it because it was the last birthday I ever celebrated until you know I was later in life
1: what well, do you know why they got involved with the, with the church? yeah,
2: um, easy pickings. so they uh my parents were teenagers when they had me i wasn't uh, I wasn't planned <laughs> <laughs> and um and it's you know it's the early seventies, so a lot of their friends are kind of just drugs and not you know not doing a lot yeah. and they didn't have friends with kids. So when the Jehovah's witnesses appear at their door and they're, and they're like, Oh yeah, no, there's, you know, they kind of, they, the Jehovah's witnesses provide you instant community. So when Mm -hmm. they went to the kingdom hall and they saw all these kids that were, you know, toddlers, they were like, Oh my God, here's our community. And so then they studied and they um they believed and then my dad um started proselytizing to his family and then his family stopped talking to him for like 3 years that was kind of how it went so the and what I wanted I mean and what for the novel you know I was channeling the 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 sense of community and and the mm-hmm. sense of fun that it is to be a teenager in the Jehovah's witnesses but at the same time if you don't know any different you don't know that the major premise of what it's built on is horrific, but you, all, you mm-hmm. know, is the community. So it was, you know, it's like, it, yeah, I had a hard time writing it, but I was writing in definitely the point of view of someone who just grew up a Jehovah's witness and was trying to have, and was just trying to have fun and enjoying himself and, and expressing love in the very little ways that he could, um, And that's I mean that's what I went through. I was just such a romantic kid. I was, you know, I'm I'm engaged to like three people I asked to marry me when I was like between six and nine years old. So I don't I'm not sure (laughs) if they know it's been called off, but I haven't been I haven't gotten any callbacks yet. So
1: nobody calling asking where's the ring? Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah, Exactly. (laughs) Do you remember when we were sitting behind that car and you asked me to marry you?
1: Well, I guess you're safe then.
2: Oh, they, it, might, it might, maybe, maybe I need to marry one of them. Maybe they're out there. <laughs> maybe it all works out in the end.
1: I didn't really know that much about the Jehovah's Witnesses before I read your novel. And, you know, except that they would occasionally show up at my door when I was a kid, or maybe it was the Mormons. I don't, I don't know which, but um, I'm going to assume that a lot of people listening don't know a lot about the Jehovah's Witnesses either. So I'm going to throw some terms at you from the novel. The first one has to be Armageddon.
2: Armageddon is coming to destroy everyone who's not a Jehovah's Witness. So it's going to be, um, so God is like worse than Hitler. God is going to have more kills than Hitler. And we're all going to get through Armageddon. And then the Jehovah's Witnesses get to live forever on a paradise earth.
1: Yeah, I, I love it when the characters were out going door to door preaching and, and one of them was saying, one of the elders was saying, yeah, you know, like if, if they're mean to you, then just think after Armageddon, we're going to get to live in their house because they're not going to be here anymore. So there was just all this kind of funny stuff going on throughout too. the Watchtower and Awake. These are two publications.
2: Yes. <clears throat> they're The two magazines that we would bring to the door. They used to I think they came out weekly or once every other week and um so that was what we used to preach we were trying to get the literature in hand uh we were supposed to read i mean as i was growing up that's all you read was jehovah's witness literature so i knew reading was like utterly boring and then and then as i got older and i started like you know reading other like reading novels and then i got into journalism and i was like these guys are writing at a grade like a third grade level and they're also, in w- the way they quote things, um, I, I would look up the original context of quotes that they were trying to prove their point, and it was just taken so out of context. And I was just like, oh, my God, these, they, they, you know, manipulative and lying, essentially.
1: Yeah. What is pioneering?
2: So I was a pioneer for a little while, it, You, which means you commit to wor- uh, preaching 90 hours a month. Um, oh, wow. Now it's 60 hours a month. And uh, so... Yeah, pioneering is a very high status thing to do in the Jehovah's Witnesses. If you're a pioneer, it's like you're a step up and you have like even more meetings with um you have it's almost like you have a secret society within the Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm-hmm. You got to it's yeah, it's uh it's it's getting a bump up. Uh but okay. you got to put in a lot of work for it.
1: All right. So do you have to be a certain age for that? Uh, You, you have to only be
2: baptized. So, as, and a lot of people, so I got baptized at 16. There are people who get baptized younger and they can be pioneers
1: okay. and they could
2: also be, and they could also be young and disfellowshipped. There was a girl in my congregation who got pregnant at 15 and was disfellowshipped. And it's just like, so now she, now, not only is she pregnant and you know, a teenager, she now has lost all social contact with anyone she had contact with.
1: So. Yeah, let's talk about that. That's on my list too. Disfellowship is a big deal. And what are you you were mentioning some of them just then? What are some of the consequences of getting disfellowshipped? I mean, what what do you have to do to get disfellowshipped and what's that process like? And then what are the the ramifications of that?
2: it's funny i've never gotten to fellowship so you don't have to write <laughs> they it's it, they i was in i was actually in a lot of those committee meetings but i was kind of fighting for my life hmm. and uh every single time i probably have more committee meeting experience than almost any <laughs> Jehovah's witness I'm telling you, It's, it's so I was fighting to stay in whenever they would try to get me on these little offenses, but uh, what the, the the main the main thing is is they they um I've learned that it depends regionally where you're at. I don't know how it is now, but back then, like say the 90s, it was regional. So certain congregation elders can have a bug up their ass and want you out of the way and um and there were a few that were like kind of after me and i was pleading to stay in for my life um because what happens when you're disfellowshipped is you uh, you're not supposed to build community outside the Jehovah's witnesses so if you're if you work or if you're at school those people are going to die at armageddon and those people will take you away from the Jehovah's witnesses so you so you can only associate with them minimally, only at school and class or when you're at work. Everything else, your whole social circle is Jehovah's Witnesses. If you're disfellowshipped, Jehovah's Witnesses can no longer speak to you. It's just complete cutoff. If you're over 18, your parents can't speak to you either.
0: Acting under Jehovah's direction, we have decided to disfellowship you. You can write us a letter after six months to be reinstated can't speak to any Jehovah's witness during that time. Since you're still underage, you can live with your parents.
1: What happened? Just kidding, just what did you do?
0: Give me the, to the shop.
2: If you want to go back, and many do, you go to every meeting, which is three times a week, and you have to just be silent and you, it takes about a year and then you can finally get what they call reinstated and then that's, and then So everyone who hasn't even looked at you for a year as you've attended meetings three times a week, all of them come running up to you and hugging you. These people that like, yeah. Um, And and then there's people who leave and they just go off the rails and they're just like, okay, fine. So it's just uh, sex, drugs, orgies. And, you know, they end up good. They end up in a bad, bad place. And, And one of the characters that actually, uh, was loosely based on one of the um, one of the real people that was loosely based on one of the characters in the book. He was one of those people who got heavy into drugs, um, went off the rails. Uh, He had a kid, he was going to lose custody of his kid. And, um, and I finally got in touch with him just to see how he was doing. And he said, I can't talk to you. And I was like, okay, what's going on? And he said, well, I just had my third drug bust and i have and i'm i'm in i'm in na right now and i needed to find my higher power and my higher power is jehovah so i'm going back to the jehovah's witnesses and it's very typical because they set you up to be and it's almost like rum for uh amish people because they you know they don't rum their their return rate is so high because they think the world is crystal meth and you know just crazy sex but they don't go like more than 10 miles away from there yeah they, they don't travel they don't go they don't they, they don't go about outside the bubble so it's very easy to get lured back in if you don't get lured back in uh there are things happen my friend Gibby, who was disfellowship killed himself Ooh. um and that was around 1992 and I asked the elders. Um, I think I was twenty. I, I was twenty-two at the time. I asked the elders um, for help because I was grieving Gibby. Sure. And they were just like, "He was already dead to us. You, there's nothing to grieve because he was disfellowship." And I had suicidal thoughts at the time too, and so I didn't know what to do. So with their with their just utter pfft of my, of what was going on that's when i just went to the local library instead of the kingdom hall and i started going there and that's how i found books so i'm it, i'm a monumentally have total gratitude to the elders for being pieces of shit to me because it led me on a path yes. that brings me here now well you know
1: and i was thinking as i was reading oh my god what well, gabe get out just get out and if you're disfellowshipped, wow, that's great. You can move on. But but it's not. Your whole world is that little community. Like you were saying, you lose everything. So it's no wonder people try. Like he tried to get back in. He wanted to get back in. So it's no wonder oh, yeah. that you would do that since you've got virtually nothing. And you're this young person. What are you supposed to do?
2: And at the same time, if you're not in, you will die at Armageddon. Right.
1: Oh, there, yeah, and then there's that.
2: Right. Even though I did a soft leave where I went and took radio classes, which was very frowned upon. And then I had a radio show at a college radio station for a while. Um, when I came back, they were like, um, you have to quit that. Mm. They were immediately like, get out of that because those people will bring you in. And they, and they couldn't believe I didn't have sex when I was like, "Uh, when I left for about a year, it was, I was getting drilled constantly. They're like, so you didn't, have, you didn't even touch a woman's boob? And I'm like, no, I didn't. And they couldn't believe it. Cause they, and I'm just like, no, I was still like following Jehovah's Witness protocol because I want to make sure I don't get killed by God in Armageddon, yeah. which is coming any second. And that's why I'm here coming right back to you.
1: Talking about the interrogation that aspect of the novel, I'm flashing on the handmaid's tale and that whole world of people snitching on each other and and having these these meetings with in the case of your book, meetings with the elders and the and the questions they would ask. Like, you know, with Gabe, just Gabe with his father and him asking, Well, did you did you touch her vagina? Did you touch her breast? All of these really oh, and people would call, members would call. Gabe's father, who was an elder, and confessed all kinds of stuff. It's just crazy the, level, the how intrusive it got.
2: Yeah. And you have to do that because if you do sin, then they call it a secret sin. So if mm. you have a secret sin, you might not make it through Armageddon. So then you have to confess. And that's... Okay. Yeah. And I, I confessed myself a few times um, so to certain things.
1: There's this huge element of guilt in the novel like Gabe feels guilty for everything he does but but especially after he masturbates so let's let's go through a list of no-nos in the religion what can't you do you can't masturbate what else can't you do
2: yeah i don't well um i think they've lightened up on the masturbation thing a little bit so so like as they were losing members they're like wait a second okay i think (laughs) i think people do masturbate so let's just give it let's give it a lighter uh a lighter tone and just be like as long as you like uh are repentant and try not to do it or you know don't do it to uh pornography or something like that
0: bill there's something more you want to tell us it's okay bill can tell us, you can confess to
1: us right here. We're all brothers here, you can talk to us. Masturbation. I masturbated.
2: Even going to a rated R movie can get you in trouble. Um, and that, and one of the first things i did when i was like getting a little more free um was i like i would go to the library and or and like watch scorsese films and watch all these films mm. i was never able to see and as i was leaving the library it was almost like i was stealing contraband out of there making sure no Jehovah's Witnesses saw the titles of the, <laughs> of the of the uh of me catching up with like the mythology of the of humanity you know um yeah 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 and it's There's no sex before marriage but if you're um if you're engaged or actively possibly going to be engaged with someone you can kiss and you can make out and so that's kind of an angle where i got really good at making out because it would just be like oh yeah this is and but actually in my heart i did believe the women i was making out with were uh potential like wives what what else is there you know you can get busted for smoking oh you you can't celebrate holidays or birthdays at all um you you really can't even like the astrology page and the newspaper uh you can't even look at that that's satanism and it's funny because i'm taking an astrology class right now (laughs) but uh, but it's just because i it's just like oh that they were skewing it in this certain way and it's not that yeah yeah
1: no sex ed in school
2: right we weren't supposed to yeah
1: yeah, and the guy ahead. who called up, the guy who called up Gabe's father and said, oh, my wife and I accidentally had anal sex. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, no.
2: Accidental sodomy.
1: Yeah, I don't know if you yeah. saw the movie,
2: but those actors. all oh, those actors that did that were so perfect.
1: It, it was, was hysterical. It was, yeah, I love those guys. Yeah. We know that Gabe has to go door to door with the elders or other church members, including Jasmine, another character in the book. I can just imagine how awkward that must've been and you had to do it. What was, what's the worst experience you ever had going door to door?
2: Oh, there were many. I mean, when I was a kid, a guy had a gun and he was in with my dad and he was cleaning his gun as my dad sat there and preached to him for, you know? Um, so there, yeah, there was a, you know, it was, it was hard when I saw school friends, you know, when I was at school, I was trying to, you know, it wasn't like I was, here was my loophole because they had this thing where they're like um well what if you what if armageddon comes and you don't know about jehovah and the loophole was well if they're ignorant they'll be let into armageddon but then the, we'll have to study with them and then they and then they could become jehovah's witnesses and so mm. my in my head my loophole was um my loophole was Oh wait, if I don't tell them and they stay ignorant, they don't have to live the crap life that I'm living right now. Uh and I didn't think it was a crap life. I just was like why would why would they need the pressure that I'm under? So when I saw kids from school, especially the you know the wonderful lovely women who I, you know, my testosterone was just pinging all over the sure. place. I'm a 15-year-old knocking on their door and then they come to the door and I'm like, ugh. Ah. And you're there with an elder and they're like, well, tell her the, tell her the thing, dude, tell her the thing. And they're like, Tony. And they're like, tell her the thing. And I'm like, have you ever thought about living forever on a paradise earth? You know? Oh just man. Like, and they would like, look at me and go, what's going on? And they'd be like, yeah.
0: So.
1: I think Gabe really felt like he was doing God's work. And yeah. I mean, there, did, yes. did you, did you feel that too? Because yes, even though he was conflicted about it, but, and, and. Well, mostly not so much, but yeah, tell me so you did kind of feel like you were doing the right thing
2: I totally felt like I was doing the right thing actually i I firmly believed i had I had faith um yeah. and i was i knew yes, I got a little older, I knew there was something wrong, and then mm-hmm. after I started like reading books that uh at the library, which um kind of I was the confuser because. When you leave the, you know, when you're leave, when you're veering away from the Jehovah's witnesses, you're doing like, you're getting to, you're getting into sex, you're getting into a yeah. and all this stuff. And I'm the guy that goes to the library and they're just kind of like, wait, we don't know what to do with this. And they would come, to, they would come <laughs> to my house and see like, you know, 10 library books and they would just look at them and go, are you reading uh, all the publications from the wa- from uh, the watchtower, which is Jehovah's witnesses before you read those books? And I was like, of course. And they're like, okay and that was kind of it as as I'm sitting there reading Bukowski and Burroughs and right, you know, right. Henry Miller and yeah. just, uh, just understanding things on a different level but I was I was a firm believer even when I when I finally when I was 29 or th- I was around 29 and I was still married cuz I I was in a I got married to a Jehovah's witness and I told her I you know what I can't do it anymore I can't because you could kind of be a loosey-goosey Jehovah's Witness and not um, like go to some meetings and and really try to get yourself in a situation and that's what I did where just do enough where they don't bug you yeah and then and so that's that's what I did is I pulled back a lot and then they and then they with that they they, you don't get privileges brother the privilege thing and I'm like that's fine I don't care um so I just I was just doing enough but then I told her I was like I can't ever go again and she's like what and I was like no it's just I just decided after reading it was after reading a Che Guevara biography actually I read that really because And I didn't even know who he was, but, you know, it's I I, I wasn't too happy about all his kills. But earlier on, when he was um, young and and a doctor and like trying to help the leper communities in um, South America, Mm -hmm. and then he started to speak out against the United States because of the slavery they were promoting in South America. So he was he wanted to expose the hypocrisy of how can you say you don't? Um, How come you how can you say? You, you know, you don't have slaves anymore when you're still promoting slaves and other slavery in other countries. Right. And that's when it all kind of clicked. And I went, how can I let these people, there's something wrong. I don't know what it is. And I've tried to ask the questions and tried to figure out how I can be a good force within the, within the organization, as they mm-hmm. call it. And there is none. There, there's, there's no changing it. So now I got to pull back and I can't be there and raise. And I even I, she's just like, can you just go just once a month? And I was like, no, because I'll raise my hand when they say something bad that makes like especially single moms it makes single moms feel bad for not doing as much as some teenage kid. Um, and I would raise my hand and go, you don't even know you, you don't know what that is because you don't have kids, brother. You know, it's just like I could no longer listen to yes. rhetoric that they were pointing at certain people in the congregation. And that was the reason why I just went cut off. Mm -hmm. Um, I still firmly believed at that point. I believed it was the truth, but I also believed that something was wrong and Jehovah is going to forgive me. And he knows what, he knows something's wrong. I I, I still felt protected in a way. And I still felt like it was the truth, but I knew something was wrong enough. And I also started to believe that, Armageddon was still going to come, but everyone's going to make it through, and the Jehovah's Witnesses got that wrong.
1: Okay. So
2: that that I started to switch it up for a while until I, you know, some years later when I really started going, oh no, I think it's
0: bad. I, think, I, think I, got out. <laughs> I don't believe in an interventionist God.
2: I, I tell people this i don't know if we talked about it but it's just like if if you have a belief system like that and it shatters mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's like the land you're standing on turns into water and water yeah. turns into cement it's just like every it's just the whole it, it's like the matrix it's just everything just shifts and you have to like it's it's hard and that and this is why it's you know these extra witnesses that are so susceptible to drugs and addiction and stuff it's because how do you cope in that situation? How do you cope when everything shatters? And it's hot, It's not easy. I was in therapy yesterday, and she was kind of <laughs> because my you know, my cousin's going to prison, and I've I've had other you know, and the and that part of the family are Jehovah's witnesses except for my one cousin, and they want they haven't talked to me ever since the book came out.
1: I was gonna ask about that,
2: and it's just like it was like zero. But they're going to everyone, every court date of his. And I'm just like, Mm. oh, that's interesting. He's charged with kidnapping, rape, and uh, domestic violence. And I'm not, I'm not a felon. And when Mm -hmm. I get out of prison, I'm not going to have to go around and tell everyone I'm a sex offender. Yeah. I just actually worked really hard to get a book published. And that's, you know, and it's just like, but that's just, that was not, not even not acknowledged. It was, I don't exist anymore. Yeah. And it's, and I'm like, they they haven't even read it because they don't even understand, like uh, that it's, yeah, it comes from tragedy, but it, in the end, it's a love story. Mm-hmm. I re- I wanted it to just be, this is a love story that just happens to be in the Jehovah's Witnesses, and that's it. I didn't want I didn't want it to be preachy in any way because other,
0: wasn't.
2: yeah, other other books that I read by ex Jehovah's Witnesses are awful. It drives me nuts because I'm like, you guys are killing me. Um because I want to do the opposite of that. I got out of preaching. So I'm not gonna so I'm done preaching. I'm just I wanna tell I want to craft stories.
1: Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win.
0: And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package.
1: And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So let's talk about music yes. in your novel, because it's, it's a, a very important part of it. What role do you think music plays in the story? Oh,
2: It plays everything in the story because music is the first, the music saved my, saved me. It saved me as a kid when. uh,
1: And Gabe too. Yeah,
2: exactly. I mean that all of every, every musical reference is essentially is exactly what I was doing and what I was listening to and what I was um I even had my dad take us to go see uh, fishbone and the untouchables and trouble funk. Cause for some odd reason in my dad's head, if the bands were black, they weren't demonized. <laughs> so it's just like, whatever. Cause he just thought soul. He's just like, right. Oh yeah. Oh, you're going to a soul concert. Okay. I'll take you kids. And then it was just so great. The minute the fishbone comes on, people are stage diving and we just got one over on my dad. The first time I heard black flag, I was just like these. They're screaming exactly what I'm feeling in my heart, and it's for some reason, I was connecting to it. It was very important, and it probably saved me a lot to be able to know. You know, as you're like pubescent and all this stuff's going on, and you're not supposed to think about anything, and you're not you. You're stuck being bored. You know seven to ten hours a week in bible studies that are really boring i mean they said it's it is brainwashing because they make it as boring as possible and then you kind of you kind of like nod off and then those that's how you get more information into yeah, your subconscious yeah, yeah. it's so um so even when i was at like the kingdom hall and i firmly believed but in my head i would be playing um you know i would i would be uh, remembering every single song to my war by uh, Black Mm -hmm. Flag or, or uh, the suicidal tendencies first record, and it would just I would just have that playing in my head in order to like cope with um, the continued monotony of what we Mm -hmm. had to go through um, at at those meetings. And it it really meant everything to me. And that's, and that's how I found this radio station called KFJC, uh, which was a college station. And that's how I found college radio. And then I didn't, and then the first time the elders were the the um the elders really screwed with me even before uh Gibby died. And I I just went and I took radio classes. I'm like, you could just go take a class, and then you can be trained to be a, a DJ at a radio station. And I just went and did that, and that was music was just it, it's It just spoke to me and i and there's some and as I get older, I realize music is almost like a divine communication because it's a it's a frequency that that we don't need to actually know all the words, but we know the emotion um and there was and so the emotion is what just spoke to me on a huge yeah. level and it and it it was it was a way for me to kind of go, there's someone out there who understands me as I still believe in this fully a hundred percent, but there's, it was just that little glimmer. It was just a little light that was just like, you're okay, dude. It was, it was almost like, you know, it was almost like an uncle just putting his hand through my hair. As I listened and just going, you're all right. You're going to be okay. And it's just like.
1: Oh, that man. one, that's exactly what Gabe is going through too. But I love that the annual district convention for the Jehovah's witnesses is held at the cow palace in San Francisco. Because that is a venue that's legendary for rock performances. I mean, the Beatles have played there. Uh, The Who, David Bowie, Pink Floyd, Prince, Nirvana. It's like this place where, in this case, the sacred and the profane kind of collide. And, and, And that's interesting because when Gabe is there at the convention with his friends, they're out scoping the chicks. They're sitting there, you know. They're they're checking out this girl and that girl, and they're getting phone numbers and and Gabe's going to make mixtapes and mail them to these girls, and and he's listing the different girls and that person likes this music and this music and that person likes this music, and it really music was really a way in the novel to kind of identify. I almost want to say your tribe. You know, you knew who who was hanging out with what kind of group based on what music they were listening to. And, and I, I, I just, I'm a, you know, I love the mixtapes thing because that's so eighties and you and I are about the same age and I remember making mixtapes and you'd give them to people and it was a way to communicate.
2: Yeah. And it was, it was, and it was, um, I mean, and that, and that was Gabe. And that was me. I mean, there are mixtapes out there probably with, <laughs> <laughs> with all these ladies, but, um, yeah, and some ladies you met and you knew that they were they wouldn't accept something like a mixtape. They would be offended by it. And then there are other ones you kinda of get a glimmer of, you know, oh, you know what Bauhaus mm-hmm.
1: is.
2: And then you're just like, Okay then, what's you know, what's your address? And so I can
1: Bella Lugosi, ah, and then I could
2: just, you know, and I can make a tape that was kind of my feelings without like getting in trouble because I wouldn't be saying my feelings.
1: So I love that there was that aspect in the book and and i love that gabe learned to dance by watching depeche mode on mtv (laughs) so did tony (laughs) (laughs) oh really okay
2: (laughs) oh yeah no i had the vhs of uh people are people and i was just like going to my first dance party going trying to mimic uh dave gehane's uh (laughs) (laughs) probably probably one of the worst um teachers of dance possible because i could have went i could have went somewhere else (laughs) Cause he doesn't know how to dance, <laughs> <laughs> but, he, but he's worldly. So of course he'd know right, how to dance. Right, right, yeah. right.
1: Well, I mean, let's clarify this. So Gabe can't go to school dances, but he goes to what they call right. witness parties, witness dances. Mm-hmm. And it was, explain the difference there.
2: So the uh, and that was also congregation based. So the congregation I was in was very do not do that. And there were other congregations, especially if you went to the Spanish congregations or the more black congregations, they would have dance parties. And the dance parties were actually really cool. And 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 it, they meant everything to me as a, as a teenager because they would be chaperoned. There was no alcohol. Uh, they would be a little uh, you know, it's they would kind of. To, uh, curate that playlist so it didn't have any too much yeah. you know worldly and but we got to dance our asses off And it's a, and it's what we needed. And I got to meet, you know, I I got to meet other like uh brothers and sisters. We called everyone brothers and sisters, but I got to meet other brothers and sisters and then after we dance, we go to the Denny's and that you know, get some uh coffee and you know, junk food and then go home. And it's just like and and it's just like did you you know, did you see Ursula? She's in Sunnyvale congregation. I mean, you gotta go visit Sunnyvale congregation. It's just and it's just um it was there, there was a sense of play. And there was also, and it, it was also, you know, the, the purity of it was kind it, it, I look at it and it was kind of endearing because we weren't there to get smashed out of our minds. We were there to dance and to just engage. And, um, and I don't, you know, yes, there's limitations to that, but those limitations are kind of cool because you're there and you're present And you dance and there's a bunch of elders around. Okay, there's elders around and you're usually friends with the elders too. And they're like, how's it going in your congregation, Tony? It's not like they're sitting there being uh, really strict, but they're around so nobody gets in trouble. So it's kind of like, so it's all, so when, you know, it's all to answer when the larger, uh, what they used to call like overseers will come to the congregation and go, I hear you doing dance parties. And they would be like, yes, but we had five elders there and nothing happened. We just make sure this yeah. and this and here's the curator playlist. And they would be like, Oh, okay. There's nothing we could say about it. So, uh-huh. so it was, uh, yeah, I look back on those parties and it's just, I I still delight in those, in those days of, you know, and it's, and it also kind of brings me, you know, to like, you know it's like yeah and then i used to go to dance clubs but everyone was getting smashed and it's just like and there's it's too like where's why can't we have a middle you know where where's where's the middle um which was a lot less there's more now middle where they have um you know uh there's more opportunity for like dance parties that where they where they create in a sober environment not that not that i'm um you know, against uh, drinking at all. I drink myself, but there's a beauty to just going to a place to dance and not having to have alcohol in your hand and to just be like, Hey, what's up? (laughs) You know, and I don't have to, I don't have to pretend I'm goofy because I had four drinks in order to get on the dance floor. I I had a diet Coke and what song is this? Let's go. You
1: know, well, I'm curious about what music would be acceptable for these parties and what music would not be acceptable?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. They ha- I guess they had a lot of soul, a lot of, um, you know, just, uh, st- these, these are the same things that would come up at weddings. At weddings, we can dance and at weddings, they, they would even hire uh, so-called worldly DJs, mm-hmm. but those DJs did have a playlist. You know, you're not gonna play Erotic City at a- uh... <laughs> <laughs> <And> <laughs> so
1: That would be interesting.
0: There
2: are other Prince songs that were, uh, were open to play. And um, yeah, Michael Jackson was played a lot, uh, but he wasn't disfellowshipped until after the Thriller record because he grew up a Jehovah's Witness.
1: Yeah, and, I, I knew he was a Jehovah's Witness and I knew Prince was, too. I, I wasn't clear on whether or not Michael Jackson had actually been disfellowshipped. I thought he put that disclaimer in the video for Thriller to try and separate himself from any, any occult interpretation, but he did get disfellowshipped.
2: No, but so what happened with Thriller was he was brought before the elders about that video. And then he wanted to, if I remember right, he wanted to pull the video and Quincy Jones is like, we're going to kill you because this is an organization built around you. Yeah. So for him to not get disfellowshipped, he just got reproved he the agreement was he would put that disclaimer so that disclaimer is there because he was trying to stay a jehovah's witness and then when the bad record came out he had got he either got disfellowshipped or he disassociated himself mm. and that's when he was um excommunicated completely and oh, wow i mean i just i see it's interesting because i see michael jackson you know the, the and you know to go back to your first question of who i'd like to interview i, I I wouldn't necessarily want to interview Michael Jackson, but I just want to talk to him because I know the torture he was going through, and I know that he was being shielded because of celebrity. And there's yeah. two, there's two different um, psychological things happening there, and to come to grips with both of those is hard. But I feel like if I could have had a heart to heart with him about, you know, Jehovah's Witness stuff that it may have it may have eased him up a little bit Mm. you know it may have i mean you know he was a complete drug addict and alcoholic and it's just like he's just trying to numb down the immense like i'm gonna die at armageddon i'm sure he still thought he was Uh. going to die at armageddon i'm I'm sure that was still in his heart and and there's and there's just kind of no help because help wasn't accessible to him because he's a celebrity so it's He's got celebrities around him, he doesn't have ex-Jehovah's Witnesses around him, and if he does, they're just kissing mm-hmm. his ass. And he and he just I think he just needed a real conversation with someone.
0: And you start to freeze, and so it looks you right between the eyes.
1: Still in communication with his right. family throughout it's, his life, so he he didn't get totally ostracized.
2: And most of his family, he was. I think he was more Jehovah's Witness than most of his oh, family. So it was him okay. and his mom, and then the and then the dad was not a Jehovah's Witness. And so and then wow. like Janet Jackson, she just got off free on everything because <laughs> she was just young, so she didn't have to really do Jehovah's Witness stuff. So I believe Michael Jackson was the one that was. Um, it was the Woodland Hills congregation in the, the valley that he went to. And so it was kind of him and his mom and, his, and the rest of the family. I don't think they got baptized, but he got baptized. That's okay. It's a, a very different thing. So he got baptized. He would actually go preaching, mm-hmm. but kind of preaching in disguise a little bit. So people wouldn't know. Wow.
1: So. Now I know Prince went door to door too. And I, I've never been able right. to figure out how he got away with being as sexy as he was and still being a Jehovah's Witness.
2: Well, so he converted. So, so he grew up Seventh-day Adventist and then, and then he left and then there was erotic city. There was, you know, it was, everything was just like um, groovy. And then uh, I think it was Larry Graham, the bass player who's a Jehovah's Witness was the one who got.
1: Sly on the family stand. Right. He,
2: he got, he, he, he studied with Prince. Prince um, started to become a Jehovah's Witness. And as he was, in his early days, and this pissed me off so much about Prince was, uh, he knew the Bible, and um, and I don't know if he was baptized yet, but at his concerts he would sing Erotic City, but he would not sing the chorus. He would have the audience, oh. sing the and that was his little what his little that was his disclaimer of not getting buzz. Yeah. yeah, it's like what a piece of shit move Ooh. that is. And then and then later on that those songs were, later on I think um, he probably got a talking to, and those songs were never in his set list again. It was was yeah, it was it he stripped it to the clean stuff.
1: Okay. So. Yeah. Huh. Well let's let's shift gears a little bit because literature is also a big part of this novel. And you've already talked about what it meant to you. And and it's it was the same for Gabe. Once he got disfellowshipped, he was doing like you were doing. He was hanging out in the library, the school library and then the public library because he couldn't find certain books in the school library. And he got turned on to Jack Kerouac and he got turned on to Henry Miller and Charles Bukowski. And those are such rock and roll writers. Uh, You know, I know that's not the genre, um, like, you know, Kerouac's bebop, but I mean, rock and roll writers in the sense that there's that that sense of anarchy, that rebelliousness in, in their work. And he just fell in love with that stuff and it and it really music and literature became his salvation and it sounds like it was for you too
2: i don't think i would be alive if i didn't um if i didn't find literature i think i think i think novels actually saved my Mm. life and that's why i devoted my life to storytelling and just i mean it's it's I, i i tell people storytelling is my religion and just you know that's, that's why I don't like it when people ask me, so what did you think of my book? And I'm like, don't ask me that question. Cause I can't tell you any lies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, Cause I'm not going against the gods of storytelling and, and people who ask that are usually self-published authors. Anyway, they, they know not to ask that, yeah. you know, but uh, I just, um, yeah, so, but, but the, yeah, uh, novels and, and, and even nonfiction, I really think, it saved my life and it continues to save my life you know i continue i it's, it's not like it's not like i'm completely out of the jehovah's witnesses that dna is always in me and that's there and is there now i just have to like kind of wrestle with the monster and i i get to wrestle with the monster by writing and by reading every day and just and just connecting on a visceral level Via words, and it means it means everything to me, and that's probably why my students get driven nuts. Because if it doesn't mean anything to you, and you're just here for the grade, I despise you. I hear you.
1: (laughs) Now I'm a sucker for any novel that has characters that are saved by art, by by literature and music, because it is so powerful. Yeah, and it you know, and for people like us who who really love it, it, it 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 does kind of usurp the the religion that we grew up with, it becomes something that's a spiritual thing that is more soul fulfilling than what we were experiencing as kids sitting in church.
2: Amen, sister.
1: Yeah, brother, I know. (laughs) (laughs) So winding up here, I saw the movie. I liked the movie. And this came out in 2017. And you can see it's streaming on Amazon Prime, which is where I saw it and it's directed by Eric Stoltz. Now, how did that come about, and were you involved in that? And when, you wrote the script, but beyond that, I mean, how did that come about? Yeah,
2: I was, um, it, it was optioned earlier by uh, Hunting Lane Films, and we worked mm-hmm. on the TV pitch that they were trying to pitch to HBO, and then something happened with one of their other projects with HBO, so that fizzled. And then, um, and then I got, it, it, and right when that option ran out, there were th- there were three three people questioning. one was the um producers of Barbershop. They were okay. like, "Is this available?" And I went, "Oh my God, you get it because it could be a black film because it, it could go either way because there's the, the, and the Jehovah's Witnesses, I mean it's just is more of a black community than a white community, so I was just uh, but I knew that I would be taken out of that process. And then I heard that Eric was reading the book and I'm a huge fan of Eric Stoltz. So when I heard he was reading the book, I was like, that's the best day of my life. I'm like, oh my (laughs) God, he knows what my name is. And he's reading my book this weekend. I just heard he was reading it over the weekend. And I didn't need anything more than that. And then I found out that um, I think he had, he was given uh, three different choices of something to pursue as his first film, first directing. And he, and he chose the book and he said, but well, we wow. gotta have Tony write it because we can't lose the voice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was just like, I am in. Um, and so that's when the, you know, the joy dissipated the holy crap. Now I have to write a script.
1: So Eric, I wanna start at the beginning and find out how did you become involved in making confessions of a teenage Jesus jerk?
0: A friend of mine had read the book, he was quite taken with it, sent me the book. I couldn't believe that this subculture of Jehovah's Witnesses was really like that. I met with the author, it was all true. We thought we'd make a film. And here we are.
1: And how was it like, I heard the author was actually there on set during some of the filming. What was it like having him there?
0: Oh, he was there
2: every day for every scene to make sure we got it right. And and Eric was just, he was monumentally great. Um giving me notes telling me where i you know i was wrong um he, he it's we had back and forth on certain things and then and then i was uh, i was part of pre-production and i was on set every day um and that was wonderful uh i, re- I really became close with sasha we're still we're still friends um mm-hmm. and he's the one who plays game and it was just yeah. And Sash is just such a beautiful human being and such a perfect casting for that role.
1: He was great.
2: Yeah. Um, and he's just uh and it's like we connect. I'm just like, oh, this is so <laughs> weird how much we connect. Um and and on set, uh, there was, you know, Eric had questions for me and I would just be there and at night I would read this what was what we were shooting the next day to make, you know, kind of anticipate questions. And sometimes it would, I would hear we'd be in the uh, video village with our mo- with the monitors. And then Eric would go talk to one of the actors. And then I would and I would be like, I think they need me on this one. But I would just sit there and I would hear Tony Duchesne. And I'm like, oh, all right, that's and awesome. Then, <laughs> and then I'd be like, OK, Tony, so we got this, this and this. He, um, what if we do? Blank? And I'm like, that works. That doesn't work. That works. Yes. Yes. No. And he's like, thanks. Bye. And it was just that's kind of how it went um One of the most beautiful ones was uh when Paul, the actor who played the father, yeah. slapped Sasha, and and that was that wasn't in the script. um That was actually and uh, Eric was like, we are. <laughs> Eric was like, he was he wasn't getting the reaction he wanted from Sasha in that scene. We were going over and over it. We were going overtime with it, and it was just like because it was the last shoot of the day for that day. And Hera comes over to the monitor and he goes, watch this. And I'm like, what? And he goes, Paul's going to slap Sasha on this take. And I was like, what?
1: And he and didn't know like, it no, was coming?
2: What? No. I was like, yeah. I was like, did you tell Sasha? He's like, no, Sasha doesn't know. He's like, but what this is going to do is this is going to set up the next take. So when we do that take, Sasha's not going to know if he's going to get a slap. And that's the reaction we're going to Okay. Get. So when when Paul smacked Sasha, Sasha almost dropped to the ground. It was a it was a whack, and um and that turned out to be the take that made it into the film, and 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 as Eric and I were walking back to where our cars were parked, he's just looking at me with the biggest smile, like oh, yeah. I was like I, I it was just so much emotion I couldn't even look at him. I'm like, uh, he's like, how you doing? I'm like, um, I want to fight someone and I want to have sex. <laughs> he goes, he goes, Wow. Well, well, why don't you just masturbate when you get home and I'll see you tomorrow. And I'm like, uh uh-huh. It's just like, because there was just so much pent up. Like, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. my God, we like yeah. just got there. And it just it went next level. And even during, because um, everyone's trying to get their work done so they can like get the hell out of there. So when it was like, when it was, when they yelled cut, then all of a sudden everyone would start working to pack up their things. And, and then I'd be like, all right, uh, rolling, rolling. And then I would have to stop and be quiet uh but when cut was yelled on every single take nobody was packing up anything the whole crew was watching the scene unfold it was just... uh-huh. so anyway yes i was a part of that and then uh even in post production eric was um wonderful to send me uh you know to send me clips and then he find, and then he sent me the first rough cut and me and him had a cup. he he wanted to add a few things to the story and there was something about the ending that i didn't agree with so i didn't know exactly how it's different yeah i didn't know how it was going to end and it um because we had to because the book in the book he says fuck god and Mm -hmm. and then well way before we got into pre-production uh someone said one of the producers wants fuck god taken out and uh and 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 they were like and we're gonna we're gonna try to get a different person we're gonna try to get that producer out of here and i was like no no no, hold on a second that producer might actually be right let me see and so i went through a rewrite and i was like he can't say fuck god that's too much in the Mm -hmm. book it works but in the film in the book it works because he immediately prays and he's he's still conflicted so we need so the scene needs to con- just convey conflict and we don't need to know. And so I, I, I came back and I was like, it's out Well, I'm taking it out of the script. And, um, but there was a, there was a scene, a uh, small scene filmed that was supposed to play after the, we cut to black. And that was the, that was, it, it's, you know, and the creative process is arguing and conflict and. So I was I was fighting to not even have that scene shot. I was like, no, it's, it's um, you know, the fingers, it's him, we don't know if he's praying or if he's doing stop time. And then we got face and then it's cut to black. I mean, I was just adamant about that. And, and they had filmed another scene after that that they thought was needed. And I didn't know, when I, fought, when I got the rough cut, I didn't know what I was going to see at the end. And I was just like, Uh, on that scene, I was screaming at the computer and I was just like, cut to black, cut to black, cut to black. (laughs) And it cut to black. And I was like, yes, yes. Um, it was, yeah, that was, uh, you know, one of the other happy days of my life, but I was just so, you know, Eric is such a wonder, like, he's a wonderful, like human being. And, and he understood the story on a level of a father and son. And that's how, that's what brought him into the story. So, even the classes that Paul wears, like that's Eric's deceased father's pair of eyeglasses. Really? There's a lot of Easter eggs in there. Okay. of What Eric was putting in that meant heavy things to him and what I was putting in that meant heavy things to me. So, there, so the emotions were high for us in very different um, ways because he connected with the father-son relationship. And then, um, and then even with Sasha, Sasha was so wonderful because Sasha is from, a, I always got this, I get this country name, and he always laughs at me for not knowing, as, as Burjana, as, as <laughs> <laughs> he's in like, like Eastern Russia or Russia. So he, well, he was born in Russia and then came to the United States. So he's familiar with feeling other. And that's, and that's what was so beautiful about him being cast. And actually what's beautiful about him as a person is he connected with just feeling out of place. Cause when yeah. he was in school, he was the weird kid that spoke Hebrew at home and was and English is a second language. So it's uh, so many things synced up on that, where I just, you know, it's, you, you I look at this and go, you know, is it really a tragedy that I grew up a Jehovah's Witness? Who else gets to experience, um, be, you know, be uh, creating a film? And it's just like, <clears throat> and and my my therapist brought this up the, uh, the other day because all it. 'Cause I'm thinking about the film biz. So I'm just like, Oh yeah, I got that under my belt and I'm working on this right now and this and this and she's just like, Do you realize there's a film made about your life? And it just sometimes it doesn't click. I'm just like mm. Oh no, no no, that's just on my IMDB and that's out there and people can watch it and that's like gone. And it's just like and she kinda always brings me back and goes, You know that was about you and your life.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I'm like,
2: Oh, oh wait, <laughs> yes, that's right. That's huge. I <laughs> think it for is huge.
1: And it must yeah. also be pretty freaky too. It's um
2: yeah, cause it's just I there, there's a disconnect as well, cause it's um it's you know the most important part of that which I learned a lot was the process. It wasn't the outcome, and um and it's just like oh man, the, you know being on set, being tired, um, having days where you're irritable, having days where. You know the associate producer and the craft services are fighting with each other, and you just want to kill them. <laughs> and um, we probably should, <laughs> but <laughs> but, um, but it still all came together. It's just like we were at war. You know, you're yeah. you're in the trenches. It's the it is forced intimacy, and where we in our accommodations, uh, we were at a big house. So I was staying with the actors. So oh. so I would talk to Sasha. I'd be like, hey, I need to talk to you, and I'd be like, all right, because I would like try to stay away from him at night because I know he was preparing for the next yeah. day but then he'd be like can we go over the scenes for tomorrow and I'm like yeah that's fine.
1: that's and cool.
2: So it was yeah it was just it was extreme intimacy on the highest level.
1: Yeah. Did your parents see the film?
2: Yeah, they did. Um they they they, they, they <laughs> it's funny cuz I think they were just so happy that they had, you know, big stars playing them. And then <laughs> and then um and then they saw it again at another film festival and um and then that's when my mom said i can't uh, i'm really because it was doing a few screenings and we did Q and eric and Eric and the everyone came out for that one and um and then she was like i can't watch that film again and i'm like it's okay you you know you're not so this film is not here to make you feel comfortable in any way at all this is you know and I, but I couldn't even watch it again because it's just, it's, I was like the, the other, th- that was like the last screening I saw. And then what I did at the next screening was they, I introduced it. And then, um, and then I sat in back for the first act and just wanted to hear if the audience were getting, was getting the jokes. And, and they were laughing like right on cue um and i'm like okay good we did it right and then i went to a bar and i had i just hung out and <laughs> had a couple of drinks and then i came back for q a and i never understood why anyone wouldn't just sit there and watch their whole film with an audience and but now i totally understand that it's just it's the intimacy is so much yeah it's just it's like it's there let let it be for them and It's too much for me. I'm going to go hang out and have dinner or something and then come back for the question and answer.
1: Well, Tony, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been a lot of fun.
2: Thank you for having me. This is a blast. Yeah, this was was
1: fun. For more information on Tony and his podcast, Drinks with Tony, go to drinkswithtony.com. Find him on Twitter and Instagram at Tony Duchesne and pick up a copy of Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk wherever you buy books and you have to come on the show again when your next novel comes out.
2: Oh, I'll be there for sure. I'll be flying to your house.
1: All right, (laughs) (laughs) party! My yard crew just showed up, so I've got people mowing right outside my damn window.
2: Oh, okay. Hang on a second, because I got someone knocking on my
1: door, and I got to tell them to get the
2: fuck away too.
1: Oh, the joys of podcasting. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And check out the Rock is Lit vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit.
0: Rock is lit.